Welcome back to The Checkup. My name's Brenton. I like to sit down with my friends and ask them questions about when they were little. And we go on a journey to when they are now. And we'll just get rid of that. I am sitting down with a good friend of mine. He prob- we probably know too much about each other already, but now we're going to talk about some more. Glenn, how are you, friend? Oh, I'm very good. Nice little introduction of some leprechaun music at the start. Yeah, it's very Zelda-ish. That's why I like it. I've been having a Zelda fix, so... When I heard that on the free music site, I was like, yeah, I'm going to use that one. Is that free sound? Uh, Mix Nix, is it? Uh, Mixkit. Mixkit. .co. Yeah. Shared out there. Yeah, it's a good little website. I've got some great stuff on there, a variety of stuff. Mm. Very good stuff. All right, mate, what'd you have for lunch? I had... Sweet potato, beans, broccoli, and chicken keb- shish kebabs. That sounds pretty good. Yeah, it was yeah. delicious. That, that sounds like a fantastic meal. The chef must have been a <laughs> master. <laughs> that was me, by the way. I cooked that. I knew what he had for lunch. I knew. Because I had it myself, and it was awesome. So I'll just, there's a little shout out to me. I like to cook things. All right, let's... Get cracking. Uh, all right, we start off and we talk about your life as a 10-year-old. Take me on an adventure back to... 10. 10. Bedroom. I want to know oh. what your, what was in the bedroom. I want to know <coughs> hobbies, obsessions, collections. Let me just... I'm just going to stop and think what year was that. 1981. I, I was in fifth class, 10. No, I was in fifth class, yeah. And I'd been living in the Blue Mountains for a year, for almost exactly a year at the age of 10 because it was only a few days before my ninth birthday that we moved there. Yep. So that's where I was in fifth class. And it was an interesting year for me because when I started at the new school the year before, I was put into the, they, we had, it was an average size school, so there was two classes for each year, and I don't think there was any composite classes. And I was put into four A. So, they, did you when you did school at primary? Did they? How did they number you? Or le- was it the teachers' surnames first letter? Uh, so, uh, some of them are like that. Yeah, ours was just one one first grade first first class. Okay. Uh, I think. From memory, when it got to, with my school in particular, we got to maybe year four or five and they started splitting up the classes. I think five and six were definitely a joint class. Yep. Uh, but one, two, three, four was full classes of the full year. Uh, and it was just year one. I don't remember right. anything else. I think in schools where they got at least two classes in that year, I'm just going to say off the top of my head, I think third class I was in 3S because my teacher's name was Mrs. Smith. So when I got into Lou Republic, there was three A, three B, three four A, four B, etc. And four in the A class was the brighter kids, and the B class was the, the dumber kids. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was in four A, so right. that was cool. Yeah. And then when I went into fifth class, I was moved into five B. And. So and I wasn't with my friends in the class, so I had to make friends with all of the, the dumber kids. That sounds terrible. Yeah, and 
because you, you, if you hung out with your classmates and you go to the playground, you hung out with them. So you didn't partic- you didn't typically mix with the other kids, even though they're in your year. You knew them. Mm-hmm. You might play against them if you're playing soccer or something. So I was lumped in. I mean, this can't, sounds terrible of me. To, I was lumped in with the with the dumb kids um, and the rough kids. So maybe you were put where you belong. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly what I thought. I'm yeah. like, you know, come here. So I had to make friends with that because I was actually shunned by the kids in 5A, even though they'd known me for a year and I went to their birthday parties. No, nah, I'm in 5B. Uh, we don't hang, not, not that they said they don't hang out with me. It just didn't happen. Right. So I, the teacher I had was Mr. Malice, which is a Greek name. And I don't know if you ever see the movie Mr. Holland's... Opus. Opus, yeah, yeah, you know, he's he was such a uh, inspirational character and, and that. Well, that's what Mister Malice was. He was a bit like that. Yeah, right. He managed to. He's artistically was oh, off the charts, and I don't know. It could have been about halfway through fifth class, and he came up to me and I was doing something, and he said to me, "He's like, Glenn, why are you in this class?" And I, I'm like, I have no control <laughs> over this. <laughs> I, I just said. Because I'm dumb, he goes, "No, you're not. You're actually quite bright." So it's funny because obviously he would have thought that he, that's why he asked me the question because he was teaching the dumb kids, right? And I and I shouldn't have been there. And uh, I was like, that kind of wow, that blew my my mind. And um, so I, for the rest of the year, I was just had a huge ego and looked down at my fellow classmates. No, I didn't do that. I. Uh, we got to the end of the year and he asked me what class I wanted to go, if I wanted to go in a 6A or 6B next year. And I weighed up my options and it was like, I'd made friends with these, I really like these guys, but, you know, do I get to be with the cool crowd again? But the 6A teacher was Mr. Marks and he was the he was the um, deputy of the, of the school and he was the one who did the caning. Oh, yep. And um, he was he was like people were scared of him, or it was the coming into the the guy hadn't started yet. His name's Mister Cooney, um, and my teacher knew him. They, I think they they may have gone through teachers' college together, and he was going to be teaching. So he's like, you can either go into Mister Marks's class, or there's this guy who's going to be coming in. Explained it, and I was like, I weighed things up, and you know, I had my, the guys that I hung out with. And for the for the whole year, and I went, oh, I'll go into 6B. And well, I wonder if my life would have changed to that point if I would have gone in a different direction. Totally different direction. Yeah, because of the people I hung out with. That teacher didn't come and pick up on it. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, so I went in it in Mr. Cooney. Cooney rhymes with loony. It does. Well it done. Does. You does. I can see why they moved you up. <laughs> <laughs> and he was he was quite the character. Um, oh, yeah. This is back in the days when you'd go to the principal's office to get the cane, typically by Mr. Marks, the deputy. But Mr. Cooney would doll out his own punishment, which involved a meter ruler. Ooh. Do you remember those meter rulers? They were really thick and chunky. They used them... To draw lines on the chalkboard. Yeah, I remember them. Yeah. He'd use that on the students. Yep. There was one guy, Simon. What year did that end? I don't know. So this was like 82. Must have, through high school, 
they had the cane. Um, I wasn't aware of it in 87 and 88 because I was year, year 11 and 12. So I, probably by 89, 90, I think. Okay. Yeah. So that was just as I was starting school. Yeah. Basically. Right. Yeah, I never got... There was once I misbehaved and I was sent to... And what you had to do is go up to the chalkboard and rest your hands on the the ledge where they put yep. the chalk. And then he would then swing this this meter ruler back and he'd come flying in. Because right, I remember one of the guys, um, Scott, I said Simon, it was actually Scott. He was up there almost every second day getting it. And this one day he thought it'd be clever and he, he put uh, like some kind of textbook or something down the back of his pants to yeah. um, to take the blow. And as Mr Cooney swung it back, he saw it and he pulled, like as it came in, he whipped out this thing out of his pants and went slamming into his, his butt. So anyway, I was up the front there and Mr Cooney said, is this your first time up here? And I went, yeah, it is. He goes, I'm going to let you off this time. Mm. So yeah, I got to... Um, didn't have to. I never got the cane or that meter ruler. Wonderful. Yeah, I'm not for violence against anyone, especially like with bits of cane. But I wonder how different the world would be if they continued that in school. Mm. I think the ones that regularly got that, uh, it, it probably never would have changed for that type of mm. kid. But I think the ones were that did fear it and could have gone to the dark side, maybe that's what kept us in check because we're like, oh, better not misbehave because there are repercussions. Repercussions, yeah. You're aware that if you do something yeah. negative, you'll get negative yeah. repercussions. And not not a once was there a girl who got, at least that I saw, had been got the cane or the meter ruler mm. because they behaved. They probably behaved because they feared getting slapped mm. very hard. Yeah, but that the other, uh, oh, I mean, I guess there's, I can't say there any other recollection or memory. The other thing that really sticks out to me is I enjoyed it when it rained because you got to stay in class yep. at lunchtime. Yep. And I preferred staying in class and reading a book and going out in the playground and... Um, Getting wet. Well, well, no. When it was, even when it was <laughs> when it was summer yeah. and it was dry, I actually, if I had a choice of some summery weather and going out and kicking a ball around, or wet weather and being inside and reading a book. I would have. Uh, that's what I preferred. Yeah. All right. So you were in Blue Mountains for primary school age, which was around well ten, year five. Yeah. F- yeah. Four, five, and six. Yeah. I was. I did at Lure Public School in the Blue Mountains. All right. So we'll go back to the bedroom side of it. And uh, your living, living area, and and things that populated that area. Mm-hmm. What did what, what, we walk into your bedroom? What will we see? See a queen size bed. Queen size bed. Yeah. That's lucky. Yeah, because we would often have visitors from uh, family or friends from Sydney coming up, so I'd get kicked out of my oh, bedroom, okay. you'd, and they got the couch. Yeah, yeah, and I got the which I I loved. We loved having. Me and my younger brother loved having family or friends up and because we'd get to go out and put the couches together and stuff and sleep out in the lounge room. Yeah, cool. Uh, apart from a bed, anything else in there? There was a, um, I'll say a built-in wardrobe, but my parents, uh, when we not long after moving there, we had a, well, they made a friend actually. He was a carpenter and he rebuilt a lot of the inside of the house for us and he became a very close family friend. 
and so there was this big wardrobe that was built in and there was access from the other small bedroom around the other side to it that was my brother's room and he had a door that went in and I had big double doors. So our the wardrobe was actually joined. Oh right. So for a bit for a bit of a party trick, you'd like you'd go in there and close it and you know, bring out the magic wand and tap it. <laughs> They've gone. They're gone. And then they'll come walking around the yeah, around <laughs> the either back through the, the door or then doing it again and pff, they're there. <laughs> because you couldn't quite you couldn't see that door from the inside because there was also cl- there was like a clothes rack yeah. blocking that view. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> we did did that all the time. Yeah. Uh, did you collect anything around that age? Uh, there was Lego. Yep. Big fan of Lego. And Smurfs. Yeah. I remember little collectible. They were like maybe a couple inches tall. They were like Smurfs you could collect. You remember the Smurfs? Yeah. I do. I do remember you the toys. Yeah. You, you get it from BP, I think. Uh, For, yeah. yeah, like you spend five bucks. They must have still been around could, in the eighties and stuff. So. Yeah, and then you yeah. ninety nine cents. I think you could then get the latest Smurf. Yep. You know, probably back then, I think five bucks used to fill your car up with petrol. I'd say it would have. I think the the cheapest I remember fuel was about eighty cents a liter, and that was during the. That would have been around the year two thousand ish. Yeah, I do remember it being a lot cheaper than that. Yeah, I think it. I think it hit like fifty cents a litre. My my dad was horrified. <laughs> yeah, because that was before I was driving. Now it's ridiculous. Yeah, now oh, like dollar fifty. If you're lucky, I think it's a dollar eighty, isn't it? At the moment, yeah. Yeah. What else did I collect? Comic books. Yeah. Any in particular? Though, actually, I didn't collect comic books at that age, like ten or so. It was mainly when I got to my late teens. It's a shame I didn't collect it earlier because those ones from the eighties, early nineties, I think would be worth. Sorry, early eighty, early to mid eighties. It was late eighties that I started collecting them. I th- they would definitely be worth a lot more now than they were then. Yeah, Whereas sure. when I got into collecting comic books, they're not really worth much now. No, I think because I, I four dollars ninety five it was for Jurassic Park comic book came out in 93 the four part series i think it was based on the movie so four dollars 95 each so that what's that 19 dollars and 80 cents and when jurassic world came out i thought "Ooh, i might sell them (laughs) if i can get a pretty penny go on ebay and people were selling the set of four together for 20 dollars is what it cost yeah, well, it gone up in twenty, tw- 20 gone cents. up twenty cents. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> if it was twenty percent, it'd be far more impressive. It went up twenty cents. Uh, so, what was like breakfast items and things like? What do you remember getting up? Oh. Maybe like on, we'll say like on a Saturday morning, and there's, there's a we get up and watch TV, cartoons, that sort of thing, and you have a big bowl or something. Oh, uh, definitely wheat bix, uh, any kind of cereal. Oh, toast. Enjoyed a bit of toast, but particularly as a kid, wheat bix. Well, mum might occasionally get some Cocoa Pops. Nutri-Grain was a favourite. But Wheat Bix, I could smash the crap out of those. I, I would, I could, even before I hit high school, I got to eat like 15 Wheat Bix. Shit. No, Wheat Bix. I didn't eat shit. 
I, I, I was quite proud of the fact how many wheat bix I could eat. In one go? Yeah, like just pfft, all in the one bowl. Or would you crush them all up and just have I, a big soggy soup? Yeah, yeah. I, I crushed them up, but I actually liked to eat them while I was still crunchy mixed in. By the time you get to the bottom of the bowl, it's a bit mushy. Yeah. But another, it wasn't a breakfast thing, even though I did have it for breakfast, Arrowroot Biscuits. Yep. So, you know, the, yeah. the oval-shaped biscuits. Yep. And because this is what dad used to, and my mum do it. And then you, you drizzle some uh, condensed milk over it. Right. And then you boil the kettle and then you pour that on. And then it soaks and that arrowroot biscuit will then expand almost twice in size in the bowl. Yep. And then you just kind of mush it up and you eat it. Oh, my goodness. It was lovely. Oh, it was very good. Oh. Haven't had that for a while because I... I've probably had an issue with it then, and I only it t- took me another twenty years to figure this out that I had an allergy to dairy, so that condensed milk or even the milk in the cereal, or later in my late teens, early twenties, having coffees. Do you think you had that allergy back then? I I do. I because I particularly remember when I started working when I finished high school, and oh was. I think I, I was 19 when I really remember this and it would have happened well before then I, because I'd get a lift from up the highway and down a lift go place that I worked at and I'd have breakfast and a coffee and when I'd walk up the street about 6 o'clock in the morning, I'd often have to throw up because I felt a bit crook. You never linked it? You just thought no, I never linked it. It's just exercise. Yeah. <laughs> It was just, it just became a routine. I'd be going up there, I'd be feeling crook in the guts, I'd throw up, and because it was always nine months of the year, it's cold in the Blue Mountains, so I'd have a sniffle or something, and that's something I found out later is my dairy allergy gave me flu-like symptoms because I'd get a lot of phlegm in the back of my throat, I'd cough a lot. So I I just thought I was just, just the effects of the cold and having some kind of lingering cold or flu. Yeah. So I just thought it was kind of all linked in. It was only 20-odd years later that I oh – well, I'd say I figured it – did some reading on some stuff because I did something didn't seem right. And then it just said about dairy allergy. And so I just replaced everything. I, I think the next day when I went to the shops, bought soy milk and I avoided having anything with cheese in it. Uh, didn't have an ice cream at night. And, yeah, it was just all soy-based stuff. And when I wait, because by that stage, when I'm talking like my 30s and, and yeah, all during my 30s and early 40s, I'd wake up every morning and I'd end up throwing up. Even before having breakfast, first thing I had to do in the morning was throw up. And it was just phlegm and stuff coming up. Yeah. And it was because the night before I may have had lasagna, um, Pasta, cheese, lots of cheese and, Just and, never connected and stuff, it. and and then like in in the night with a bowl of ice cream or, oh, oh, sometimes instead of an ice cream, I'd have I'd have cereal yeah. as a bit of a dessert, yeah. which of course covered in milk, doubling down. Yeah. yeah, so I'd be going to bed at night and wheezing and coughing and. And um, snoring a lot because it was just the the way my throat had constricted a bit, not enough to kill me, but enough to to go. Oh, there's something not right here. 
Yeah. All right. What was? Do you remember what the first musical album you bought? Oh, I kind of do though. I, I remember the first music I listened to. It was typically on what they were records, so LPs, vinyl, and it was Star Wars. Okay. My dad had bought the Star Wars soundtrack and stuff, so I'd often be playing that. And there were other records. He had a huge vinyl collection, and that he had since like the seventies, maybe even earlier than that. And uh, yeah, just getting the getting the thing on there and the needle on the on the vinyl. We're trying to f- pick the right track. And but when it came to music, oh, it was probably about the mid eighties when I found that oh, I had a taste for stuff that had a bit more of a beat to it. Yeah, rock. Yep. And the first album I would have bought would have been they were because I went. My parents went to church. I was going along a church, and it wasn't an Anglican church. It was uh, a um, Protestant. It was a Pentecostal church. So the music we'd often listen to was quite, it was rock. And so the band was called Petra. Beat the System was the album. And I bought that on a, on a tape, audio tape, cassette tape. Yeah, cassette. And that was the first. And then, I would, then I'd buy a lot of that. And then my, my, my taste in music progressively got more of a harder sort of guitar edge, so it went into hard rock and heavy metal. And then you got into music yourself. Yeah. I, well, I, I did it, I think I was in year eight, and I um, I don't even know why I chose this instrument, but I wanted to learn the flute. Okay. Bit of a strange, a strange choice of instrument for a 13-year-old boy. And had lessons and learned learned how to sight read music, and it was okay. But I didn't really put in the hard work and practiced. It's a shame, really, because uh, and I ended up getting turned off the instrument because it wasn't cool. Yeah, chicks def- definitely dig- didn't dig it. It's a shame because I don't know if you've ever seen flute beatboxing on YouTube. I haven't. Look it up. There's a dude who he, he beatboxes while playing the flute. He does a Sesame Street theme song, beatboxing, playing the flute at the same time. I'll check Look it out. Look that up. Yeah. So I, I just lost interest in it. And there was a family friend that we knew through church. And he'd actually moved up to Queensland. And he had an interest in the flute. But he, he couldn't afford one. And he'd rent a flute. And then I just said to my mum... Just why don't you send put this in the pa- postage pack and send it up to Graham? Yeah, and then he's and yeah, got a flute. Then he's got a flute, and he was he was greatly touched by that. And I was like, well, I'm not going to use it, but I got into year eleven and had an interest in drums. And it actually came about because after church one night, and the the morning services are typically uh, a little bit more mellow. So we're not talking like organ music. We're talking about drums and bass and piano and guitar. But the night services were quite uh, a bit more upbeat, definitely rocky. And there was, I sat on the drum kit and Rick Markham was his name, brilliant drummer, he taught drums. And I sat on there and I was just tapping with my hands on on the, some of the drums, on, on the, I think it was the floor tom and on the snare. Bit of a tribal beat. My parents are South African and we... Amongst the LPs, we had uh, we had African 
music. Ipitumbi, I think, was one of the artists. And so I'd always had this kind of beat. I had rhythm to me. And he actually said to me, oh, do you play? I'm like, no, I don't. He goes, oh, you got the rhythm. It's like, oh, wow. So the next Saturday, I got on the train at Katoomba or Lura, Glen Lura, about an hour's trip down to Penrith. Took a friend with me. Went to a music shop and I think it was 20 bucks. Might have been 15. 15, 20 bucks, bought a pair of drumsticks. I'm like, I'm going to play the drums. And then... If, you, if you've got a pair of drumsticks, anything's a drum, right? Yeah, that's that's true. And so headed back and we had... That was on the Saturday. We had youth that night. It was a pretty, pretty progressive, a pretty fun youth group to hang out with. And I, I, I went to church early. Because, oh, I've got to kind of describe it. It was a Bible college there, Commonwealth Bible College in the Blue Mountains in Katoomba. And they, the chapel where we went to church, I tried to get in there early just to have a little bit of a go on the drums, but it was locked. But our youth leaders, and we had youth that night, and it was at their place. He was a Bible college student, and he had a unit with his family at the back of the Bible college that they rented or whatever, I guess. And so we had youth there that night and we were told that the next night at church, it's going to be a youth night, the youth were taking over. And so we'd have a youth band and picked out who's going to play what. And Nairi was going to play piano and Scott Garrett was going to be on, on, pia- uh, on keyboard and, can't remember what the other instruments were, but then they went, he said, oh, Glenn, you'll be on drums. And I was like, I don't actually play the drums. And he's like, yeah, but you got drumsticks. <laughs> so you're the drummer. I went, all right, then, can I get in there early tomorrow? So it's actually the morning, after the morning service, I stayed in there, I think morning service finished at, at midday, quarter to, quarter to 12, I think, and my mum must have gone home. Me and some mates went and grabbed some fish and chips or some chips from the, the shop. And that was back in the day, two bucks worth and you could feed a whole village. Yeah. And and I just stayed in there for several hours just bashing away at the drums so I could be ready for the service that night, for the rehearsal for the service. Did the rehearsal, was happy with it. They didn't sack me and then played drums that night and uh, people were, were amazed. They were actually, I actually... The, the wife of a guy and a different guy who played drums. His name was Tina. Um, Tina King. Her husband's name was Stephen. Huh. Stephen King. She came up. She's like, Glenn, I didn't know you could play the drums. I was like, neither did I. <laughs> yeah. And that, so that's how I got involved with – that's playing drums. And then they just rostered me on. and I didn't actually have lessons. I kind of learnt as I went along. And my brother – so I was – 16 or so. Uh, no, actually, it might be a couple of years after. A year or so after that, my younger brother decided, because he's five years younger than me, decided that he wanted to learn bass because he was getting into the sort of music I was getting into. By that time, it was a, a Christian heavy metal band called Striper. But I was into other music, like Bon Jovi and a few other, art, you know, sort of hard rock artists. So my brother was kind of following my footsteps in music musical taste. So he wanted to learn the bass and 
the the drum teacher that I'd mentioned, he'd actually been learning bass and then he was selling his bass to get the next one up from that. He was going from a Fender Squire bass to a Fender Precision. So he was selling that Fender Squire bass, which my parents bought, and so my brother could learn the bass. Um, but he didn't really he didn't really apply himself all that much. So I'd find myself getting on that bass and then teaching myself the the songs that we were playing. And I end up swapping my drum kit, because my parents bought me a drum kit, I end up swapping that drum kit for that bass. And I've still got that bass. So that was in probably 88, 89. Still got that bass. It's at home. And that drum kit that I swapped with him back then, let's say it was 89, I actually saw that drum kit last year. Because many years later... My parents gave that drum kit, always giving away musical <laughs> instruments, gave that to a couple who had, a, had some young sons. And when I was house-sitting their house last year, I saw that drum kit packed up it was in their garage. Mm. I, like, I remember that. I, I banged on that. Yeah. <laughs> it's in a very innocent and wholesome kind of way. Yeah, not the other way. Yeah. So that was that was my musical... Um, journey. Did I do anything with music? No. I I tried to start a few bands with mates and stuff. Yeah. Didn't really. You know, we... Oh, look, it would be... I'd end up playing in a pub in 2012, which is many years later, uh, because I, I was doing a, a, a music business course at TAFE, and it was part of our TAFE assessment. We had to play at a pub. And, yeah... We never never played as a band anywhere with my mates. Right. We had dreams though. We had big dreams. That wasn't the gig where you wore Stormtrooper armor, was it? Didn't you didn't you play a, a gig? Oh, look. Well, actually, we did several. We did in 2012. There were several. It wasn't just the pub. There were times where we got to play a fair bit in public. Okay. But when I say I hadn't played in a band, I'm talking like, you know, original songs and yeah, and yeah. we, you know, we jammed and we 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 wrote songs and all that sort of stuff. But I did get to play plenty in front of crowds at church, whether it be drums or bass, whether it be in church or carols by candlelight. You know, we, we I did one at the Three Sisters at Echo Point. There was thousands of people mm. there. So I did I did get to play in front of crowds. But never got to record anything, or live that dream, yeah, that rock star dream. All right, well, I'll tie the next one into that. Like when you were little, what, what did you want to be? What did you see yourself getting oh, into? I think I wanted to be a stormtrooper when I was, I was six. I was like, I want to be a stormtrooper because that was nineteen seventy seven. Star Wars came out. Yeah, so I wanted to be a stormtrooper. How was the pay? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, uh, maybe it was the medical benefits or something. And uh, oh, I think I also wanted to be a, a dinosaur right. as well. And maybe your next question is, did I ever get to realise those dreams? Yes, I did. Yeah. I've been both <laughs> a dinosaur and a stormtrooper. But I think growing up, I wanted to be an artist. That's I enjoyed drawing. My parents always encouraged me to draw. Our family and friends, maybe because I was young, they're like, oh, geez, you're good. But I just, I draw lots. And so I was like, I'm going to be an artist. Had no idea how to become an artist. Yeah. My parents had no idea. They encouraged me, but they didn't know what to do with me. Yeah, which direction to send it. Yeah. yeah. I guess, oh, let's let's 
do courses or something. Yeah, it was the same when uh, the career guidance counselor would come through our school and they sit us down and say, what do you want to be when, you know, what, what career do you want to chase? And the, I turned them and said, well, I want to get into puppetry and animatronics. Mm. And oh, they like. They'll sit there like stunned mullets. They're, they're like, oh, I will do blue. Yeah, can you, yeah, can you pick something that, that is achievable? Yeah. <laughs> can you do a normal job? Yeah. Because, because I mean, who, who does that and gets paid for it? Well, people do because that's, I saw it on TV. Exactly. And that's why I'm inspired. And they, they just didn't know where to send me. No. So I, if I had a better career advisor, I'd have a much better career, <laughs> to oh. be honest. <laughs> Maybe. I, I don't think anybody, whether it be the 80s or 90s, had career advisors who knew what they were doing. No. I think I, I reckon I was, I was told a couple of times through school I'm, I'm too creative, for my own good. Yeah. In that time frame, because I was doing things that I wanted to do, but the the world wasn't as big as it is now, so there was no avenues for me to go down. Or maybe it was too big, and they didn't know how to access that information. That, that's that's. What I mean, we're in a big world, but thing. I think because of the internet and the ability to find this information it's also made the world much smaller for us to be able to yeah but yeah. but not over but people still are very small-minded and they don't think that they can be something more than what they are that's true they don't they don't dare to dream so then he, the career you did eventually go down because uh, you i remember you were a machinist yeah well that was interesting so i get i get I get to year 10 i i, I did work experience Kmart in the gardening section. Yep. That I don't know why. <laughs> you do something once a term. In year ten, I think it was one day a term. So I ended up working at Kmart like for two terms and then I did I was at a butcher's for one term, which I found interesting. And I'm not sure what happened in the last term. I may I think I sprained my knee at a camp. I think that may have had had changed things up because I think in the fourth term of year ten you did a two week block block release. I think I had a, a physical injury at a camp, running on the beach at night. I think we we're playing some game with spotlights and stuff, and I didn't see a bit of a divot of like a bit of a dugout bit in the sand, and boom, busted my knee. So I didn't. <laughs> I didn't do that last bit of work experience. So I did year 11 and 12 because I had no idea what I was going to do. Back then, you would go to year 10, leave school, go do a trade or stuck around year 11 and 12 because you wanted to go do university. Or if you're in category C where I was, was you didn't know what you wanted to do with your life so you're going to stick around for another couple of years at school until you figure that shit out. Yeah. So I got to the end of year 12 and I thought, I want to be graphic designer. Now, unfortunately, I hadn't chosen art in year 11 and 12. Yeah. Even though I loved art, I didn't choose it. I think I had my reasons. I think it was the teachers were particularly fond of the way they were kind of cramming. Their it was one particular art style. I think that was the problem. It's, a bit, it's decades ago now. So I got out of year 12. Thinking, I want to be a graphic designer, but then like, how do I do this? And so I you reckon that's like the 
looking at doing graphic design, do you feel like that was like pulled from when you were younger when you were doing all these drawing and Yeah, it w- it was. It was. I could I put together a bit of a a you know, it was a little bit later. So I finish I finish year 12, get my results because back then you get your results like at the end of January because it wasn't all on computers and stuff. And I in January 89, I was up in Queensland at Surface Paradise. I was at a friend's place. Come back to New South Wales. I'm going to have to get a job now. So I went into CES, Commonwealth Employment Services, found a job vacancy for a pastry cook's assistant. It was a baker's assistant. Now I can't even remember. There is a difference. And it could have been, who knows, but I was like, I'm going to go for this job. I went for the job. I got the job. I'd find out later, I didn't know the girl at the time. I'd end up dating her. She actually went for the same job, but I got it. I, mean, I didn't just date her. I ended up getting engaged and married to her and had four kids with her. <laughs> and um, it was funny, though, because when we were dating and she was like, that job that you had, I went for that job. And that, it actually rubbed her the wrong way. If it was ever brought up, it used to piss her off. May have been what contributed to our um, getting divorce. <laughs> no, I, I kid. So I worked for two years in a ba- in a bakehouse at Coles. First year was slicing bread. Every day slicing hundreds of loaves of bread. There's machines for that now. Yeah, they had a machine for it then. You still, <laughs> you still had. It still took hours. It would it would take. Oh, I think it was because what time did I start? Could have been six in the morning. Probably finished slicing the bread by about 10 o'clock. And then there was other stuff, like there'd be the cleaning up and all sorts of stuff. There there were other... That was the job that they gave the new guy. The other pastry cook's assistants got to do other stuff. And, you know, they talk about the best thing thing since sliced bread. Um, Probably the best thing since the bread slicer, they should say. Because I'd hate to be doing that by hand. So I did that for a year and then... One of the, the the bakehouse managers said, "Do you want to? Um, would you like to? Not right now, but would you like to become an apprentice pastry cook?" And I actually liked what they did. I thought it was a pretty cool job, and because they had two apprentices, so they, we had to wait for them. Uh, by that time, they were second and third year apprentices, so I had to wait for them to either complete their trade, move away, quit, get sacked, or die. And my plots to have them murdered weren't quite panning out. So <laughs> they made me, I think, a trades assistant and I worked on the back bench and I got to do everything that the apprentices did. And typically the apprentices got to do everything that the, the tradesmen did. But my job was, my first job was to mix the batter up for donuts and and make donuts. So I'd do that for two or so hours every morning. Yep. Donuts and then... Some became cinnamon donuts and the others you wait to cool down and then you dunk them in the fondant or the chocolate and the sprinkles and all that sort of stuff. So that was my first job of the day was making the donuts and then I then I would do I'd help out wherever it was needed. But I enjoyed doing that and even though I wasn't a tradesman, they did sometimes put me on a midnight shift on a Friday night to go in and because I'd have all the bread ready in the prover. Uh, it's all risen 
to put it in, start putting all of it into the ovens and then pulling it out. And it was very rigorous, rigorous and vigorous uh, workout. Like you'd sweat. But I actually enjoyed doing that and pulling out and thumping the bread out. Yep. And because you start at midnight, you'd finish like at eight o'clock. And it never smells bad. Uh, actually, the funny thing is you can't smell it. Really? Cannot smell it. Go go for a two-week holiday. You come back, you're like, what's that I smell? You get used to it, yeah. Yeah, you go, what is that? That smells so delicious. Yep. But within uh, even less than a few days, you cannot smell the, the smell of hot bread. Yeah, it's the same at work. With it's a dirty smell that comes through where I'm at, and uh, people will go, oh, this smells horrible. And yeah, you're like, like, yeah. I can't smell a thing. <laughs> you, got, you, you smelt it, you dealt it. Yeah. Yeah. So I did that. And I was getting the point, I was like, I, I want to be, uh, I want to become a pastry cook. Not just a baker, because a baker just bakes bread. Pastry cook bakes bread and makes cakes and everything else. Funny thing is, even though this was at that time, we're talking the late 80s, early 90s, even though a baker, they were trade qualified to just bake bread, they actually got paid more than a pastry cook who could do that job and also make cakes and everything else. Wow. It was it was a union thing. Yeah, something wrong there. Yeah, yeah. And so I thought, I'm looking forward to it, but I've, I've got a year, two, maybe two years. I think I had about two years until uh, there could be a job opportunity there. And I was 19 thinking I'm going to have to, I've got to do something. Mind you, though, I was applying for, I did, the, in the two years I was at the Bakehouse, I applied to go to the University of Western Sydney to do graphic design. And the first year, I had the shittiest looking portfolio ever. Portfolio ever. And then the next year, I went for, I, I did a, a like a, part-time sort of course, through a thing called Continuing Education West, which is similar to the WEA up here in Newcastle. And I did a course in, it was called Design for Small Business. Mm -hmm. And our tutor was actually the head of the graphic design department of the the university. And um, did that help me? No, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) He had other suggestions. And I ended up doing a course at TAFE. Because he's like, all right, you know, build on this, build up your resume, go do some t- courses at TAFE. So I look through the handbook, and I was working full time, look through the handbook, and I see graphic reproduction was being offered down at Sydney TAFE. And I applied for it, and I got in. But that meant I'd start work at 6, finish at two 2.30, catch a train, get down to Sydney at 3, get down there at 5, I think the course started at six, finished at nine, get on the train back. I'll get home about midnight and then have to get up early the next five o'clock the next morning. But I did that for a whole semester. Wow. And so I'm like, I'm going to do graphic reproduction because you're reproducing graphics. I don't, maybe you're tracing stuff. I don't know. So I go do the course, found out that it had nothing to do with drawing. Right. It's... Graphic reproduction cameras, and they're huge. They're absolutely monstrous things. And you would take, uh, it would create, I think it was called bromides, and you would, 
there'd be page layout and get there and they'd take a you'd take a photo of it and then you'd put it through this and you learn how to process it and you do all this stuff and then then from there plates are made. So that's a job. You'd be a graphic reproducer at a big printing place. And it I, I figured out within a day, like the first day of doing that, that this course really wasn't what I thought it would be. But I ended up sticking around and doing doing it for a semester. And it ended up taking like my brother down and some of my friends. <laughs> it, was, it was probably after the first time I started taking them down because the, the numbers started to drop off. People were leaving because the, they were like, oh, this probably weren't, weren't signed up for either. So I would take them along, my, fr- my brother or my friend, take turns. Sometimes I'd be there together. And the funny thing is I ended up, I ended up getting a certificate for it and so did my brother and one of my friends because their names ended up on the roll. Oh, wow. And so they got certificates as well. They didn't pay for the course, but it was... Oh, that was through TAFE. Yeah, that was through TAFE, but that was back in 1990. Okay. Yeah. So they weren't really up on admin. No, no. The, the, I think the teacher had put their name on the roll and ended up... In the, and despite the fact that they may have done like six or so classes each, they ended up getting getting a pass on that. That's hilarious. Yeah. So uh, I added that. <laughs> but last day of... Of the course, they took us into a new part of the the TAFE, and it was all very fancy and modern. And it was there was a drum scanner, this huge machine. It was a drum scanner, and it was used to scan uh, photos and stuff. So that where you'd get photos and then use these other cameras to take photos of the photos to make bromides, that it would scan it. Now you know, like a flatbed scanner. Yeah, that we might get now. I haven't seen one in a while, really. Oh, it's essentially the top of any printer now. Yeah, well, that's actually that's true. I'm thinking of when they were their own that separate own unit. Separate unit. Yeah. yeah. Well, those things probably have do better quality what this huge drum scanner did, wow. and so we're taken in there, and we were told this is the future, and the future is now. Like, what do you mean? Well, what we've been teaching you for the last semester that's actually now redundant. We've got these things. <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah. Later, when I'd end up doing other courses, because I end up becoming a graphic designer, uh, other courses, years later, I would have a teacher in the class talk about the old days, this, that and the other, and I'd be like, oh, bromides, and look, I've forgotten all the jargon. But I, I'd actually say things, and they'd look at me like... How do you know yeah, this? Yeah, how do you know that? Like, this is beyond your... Your understanding, and I just say, and I just tell them about what I did, and, and even though what I had learnt was completely superseded, never needed again. It was, it did. Look, it was a good talking point that I could have with yeah. people who had experienced that. So it, it put, it gave me some connections with people and and stuff. So yeah, that I left there. Sorry, uh, finished. Didn't didn't get into graphic design at uni, and looked for another job while I was still working. Found that they had apprenticeships down at Lithgow, at this small arms factory, which became Australian Defence Industries, and went for a job there and did an apprenticeship as a fin machinist, and and was involved in the production of assault rifles and other interesting things. That's a huge jump. Yeah, but baking baking bread, icing donuts. To making parts for killing machines, yeah, for, for weapons, and yeah. they also made 
They made handcuffs and other things. Yeah, cool. So I did that for a few years, finished my apprenticeship, kept me on there because I was involved in quality assurance. And Lithgow, I, I travelled from Lura to Lithgow and home every day. Actually, at night, I was on. Af- they put me on afternoon shift, which I enjoyed. Terrible in winter. Had too many close calls with icy roads and trucks. And lived to tell the tale. Didn't have any accidents, but there was too many close calls. Went, we're going to move. And by that time, I was married. Two, two kids, two boys, two young boys, both under the age of three. Two and a half and six months. And I said to my wife, uh, we're going to move. And she's like, well, do you want to move to Lithgow? I went, no, not to Lithgow because that's a hole. And I'd have to have half my brain taken out. Because I... I so I could, you know, sometimes you can see the future. Yep. You're like, if I do this, this is going to be the outcome. And I thought, if I move to Lithgow, I'm going to be stuck there for the rest of my life. Yeah. And I won't get back out of that of that place. Apologies to anybody who lives in Lithgow and loves Lithgow. But just for me, I just couldn't handle the weather. So I went, if we're going to move, let's move somewhere where it's warmer. And it is warmer. The, the climate in Newcastle is a lot better. Wife wanted to go to Queensland. I'm like, no, I work in a uh, like a, a factory manufacturing facility sort of conditions where it's no air conditioning. And I don't want to be sweat my ring out every day <laughs> operating these machines. So let's move to Lithgow. So that's when we came here. Look, I, I did a course in hydraulics and pneumatics to further my my talents. But then I started doing evening courses in, back then they call it desktop publishing, which is essentially now graphic design. And and then went that avenue and then gained those skills. Did a NICE course, New Enterprise Incentive Scheme, which I was unemployed at the time. So you New Enterprise Incentive Scheme, you come with a business idea and then they give you the training to learn to it's a certificate for in small business management and then they equip you to then go you can start your own business which i did and that business was to manufacture drumsticks because i could i knew manufacturing turning even though it was metal rather than wood and and i was a drummer so i did that and i'll say failed horribly at that it went well not well enough but because the the enterprise center where I did the course at was so impressed with my preparation and everything I did and the logos and designs and stuff, and I was helping other fellow classmates come up with business names and do it doing their logos that they got me back the next intake to then actually the next two intakes to actually do presentations to other classes and talk to them about designing logos and stuff so they wanted me to change my business plan from doing drumsticks which wasn't really working to being somebody that would talk to small businesses and and design logos and flyers and stuff so i had to do that that's a whole i'm not gonna go in that story but but when i I did the new business plan gave it to the senior coordinator and asked him to go through it because it had to go th- to DEACHA, Department of Employment, Education, Training, Youth Affairs. Now it's DT, I think, Department yeah. of Education, Training. Yeah. And I go, I'd finished it off weeks in advance, gave it to him, 
and hey, how, you know, I checked in next couple. Did you? Yeah, it's all good. It's all good. But on the day I had a, re- I had a my quarterly review for the last quarter, going into the last quarter of my business, and there was a mentor there, and there was this guy. His name's Tony, and he actually he he told me off in front of the mentor that, and he even he got my business plan and threw it on the thing, going, "What's this?" I was looking at him. And he's like, we can't, we can't accept this. You can't just change your business idea from this to that. And I was just like, <laughs> I was just blown away. And then I went, and I, and honestly, I was, I was that, oh, what's hijacked or surprised or it was a setup. He was using me as a scapegoat, right? And I'll say I was on the verge of tears actually. Because I was like, this guy has just completely betrayed my trust. He's thrown me under the bus, and I dropped my head. And he must have thought, "Oh fuck, I've, you know, I've, I've won." And um, the tears didn't come. And then I looked back up at him, looking straight in the eyes, and I was just like, "And then I gave him what for?" And I said, "I don't understand this. You told me to do this. You, you're the one who told me to do it." And I completely burnt him down in front of the mentor. And um, so I was, I didn't, I didn't complete. You, you do it, it's a year, you get a year of, I'll say funding. It's like a, it's like a Centrelink payment you get. And um, just to say you can pay your rent and do all that, feed yourself while you get the business up and running. So I didn't get the last quarter of that. I had to then go into unemployment benefits. So I think I ended up getting a job somewhere doing something. But um, yeah, it was interesting that, that's when I. That's probably my first lesson in in getting burnt by somebody in business. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, didn't, didn't learn, did you? Didn't learn from that. Mm-hmm. No, that was many, that was many moons ago. <laughs> so I, I, uh, yeah, learn a very well. Though, and he, f- I think he feared this. He feared that I would, I'd bring him down to, that I'd have a written complaint about him to the governing body and you get the sack but I didn't because I realized if we I, I there was a there was a bit of up, upheaval happening at the time and I thought if I get him the sack it'll be a domino effect and it would jeopardize the niece scheme at that place and I had friend I fellow classmates who had another 3 months and then the, the intake after that and the intake after that, people that I'd met and, and dealt with, that their lives would be ripped apart. If he if he got what he deserved and he went down, it would affect other people. So I thought, nah, I'm just going to, I'm not going to put in a complaint. I'll just back off. Yeah. Well, I think about a year later, he fucked up again. He ended up getting taken taken out of the equation and and the the contract for nice was taken from that enterprise center yeah and but i was glad that and it people there were other people who worked there lost their jobs but i was glad it wasn't me was a catalyst of that because the assistant coordinator in that so this is in 97 98 um i would see her again in 2012 and she was working at TAFE and 
yeah, and she had very m- many fond memories of me. And uh, bec- I was doing a course, and it was because of her. She was teaching one of the classes, and she said, you don't need to do this class because you were back there in 97, 98, and what you, you did the certificate for in small business management, you don't need to do this unit of small business management in this music business course. So we'll do an RPL because you've done that. And she'd then take me in to see the head teacher and say, oh, Glenn, I've been discussing about RPL, but he's doing certificate for him music business. Maybe we should think about putting him in diploma level of music business. And, and she was trying to introduce me to the head teacher, but the head teacher had also known me for 12 years while she'd known me for like 17 and uh, so they discuss in between themselves, and they end up make put me in, put me at a so, uh, advanced diploma level of music business, and um, which was funny because as there wasn't actually a class, I had to then go and teach myself. I was I was a qualified TAFE teacher by that time, but it made me go. I'm so glad I didn't take that dude down because Liz would have lost her job. She ended up losing a job anyway, but she would have lost a job because of a complaint that I'd put in against this guy. Yeah. And I thought this situation and this, the fact that we can, hey, how you going and be so friendly yep. is based on the fact that she didn't have any negative feelings towards me from something that was over like a decade and a half before. Mm. So yeah, sometimes you've got you to pick your battles. I mean, that's one of the things I learned in life is um, you got to, first of all, you got to pick the right, you got to spot them. Yeah, you got to spot them. <laughs> you got to spot the the wrong people yeah. to do business with, but also pick your battles as well. Like you don't need to, you know, is this a hill you want to die on, or you want to kill other people on, and what kind of effects it will have? So yeah, uh, and I think definitely the last couple of years, it's 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 been a big lesson of, of how to spot these people and, and and seeing those red flags popping up. Yeah, it makes me wonder. <laughs> I should have. From year 12, I should have tried to get the best marks I could and go do a uh, degree in psychology. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, looking back on hindsight there, what, what what would be a message that you would send to 10-year-old Greg? <laughs> There's a bit of a, a bit of an in-joke there. Um, wow. I, I don't know. I'd re- I'd have to sit down and think about this. I think it'll be a series of lessons. Um, just sum you got to you got to oh sum this yeah. up. It's got to right. be one precise one little thing. Oh, what would you? What would be the message you send back to to yourself? Okay, wear a condom. <laughs> 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 now I kid, I kid, uh, mate. Just if you, th- this is what I'd say to ten-year-old Glenn or Greg. If you. If you can dream it, you can achieve it. Which I think that's what Walt Disney <laughs> said. But I think it would be that. Like, if you think you c- if you want to do that and you, you'd love to do that, you can do that. you just got to find out how to do it. Yep. Which may have been a bit difficult, I think, because the only access we had to information was in libraries. But, <laughs> but then there's the whole... The book has to be published. I mean, yeah. there weren't many books on how to become these things that you wanted to become. And it's not in the palm of our hand anymore. No, no. Oh, and even no, then, sorry, it's not in the palm of our hand back then, yeah, like it is now. Yeah, 
and things are changing so swiftly now that even if they're, I mean, there's jobs that are just kind of popping up and 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 becoming reality. And but then they're also becoming irrelevant and obsolete, yeah, just as quick, very, very much so. I found that when, so I visited small arms factory in 1980, either 87 or 88. When I was doing year 11, year 12, I did industrial design and we went for a excursion to Lithgow and we did a tour through the small arms factory. And uh, the, the thing that st- struck out or stuck out, I should say, the most for me was the drawing office because I, 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 that's something else. I was... As well as an artist, later I thought maybe I could become an architect or a draftsman or something. So when I was in the 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 drawing office, I got to see these draftsmen with their big tables and their rulers and stuff and drawing stuff, and they showed us the process. This uh, after the design, but this they're drawing it, and it goes from there, and then it goes to these people in this next part of this big office space in this building where things are made into blueprints and the the process that they make blueprints and then it gets filed and it gets archived and there were people who were responsible for for document uh, I, I think documentation controls or word that got bandied about a bit but they were archiving all the stuff so that's that was in let's say that was in 88 I started working there in 1990 and they had computers. They were doing this. And then in 90, 1993, we were doing CAD at TAFE. And that did interest me. And then we, after our first year as an apprentice, we were in an apprentice training section four days a week. And then one day a week we were at TAFE. The, the training they had there was exceptional. That The stuff that anybody else have to learn at TAFE and then apply in their workspace, we were learning that four days a week already. So we were actually, we were smashing it at TAFE. Yeah. We, mm-hmm. knew, we knew how to do that stuff before the teacher marked us off that we could do it. So I, I was learning TAFE, oh sorry, I was learning CAD at TAFE and then after that first year of apprentice training section, I put us in different sections, three months in each, in different areas around the factory, metal finish, heat treatment, um, maintenance, all different things. So I got to spend three months in the drawing office. Now, it went from a dozen or more draftsmen and ancillary staff. There could have been 50, maybe even 80 people in a drawn office that, that was in this building, but then they moved him into a much smaller office space. And I think there may have been eight draftsmen and they had one person who did documentation control because they would draw it and then they would send it to a machine that would print it out on a, like a microfilm thing and then it would print it out. And then that girl would actually then file that in this filing system. Yep, okay. Now... Now, it would be they just it's it's on a network drive. You wouldn't yeah, it'll be digital. Yeah, you wouldn't even need that microfilm yep. bit that was done. Huge, huge printers and plotters and stuff. But again, it was the draftsman that then 
they'd put that that card with the microfilm in they'd put it in the thing and then pff, and off it send and it would print it out. Yep. So the Drassen were doing that too, or the, the girl who did documentation control. So I got to see huge changes in industry and, and the impact, the way things change. It's, it's just, it's phenomenal. Yeah, and it's forever moving. Yeah. Just, it rolls on and a new process pops up and like I said before, it just quickly disappears and it's replaced yeah. by something else. Yeah, I mean, yeah. right now we're using the pod, the Roadcaster. Yeah. Pro by Road. And th- back in the old days, I mean, th- th- this is we couldn't do this. But five years ago, even less, we'd need a lots of different bits of hardware plugged into a very powerful computer yep. to do it all, and then edit it and do all that stuff. Now it's all in this, and we just plug in the microphones and adjust the the sliders to what level we want to record, and hit record. Yeah. And then either export, we're going to either drag it out as a WAV file or export it as an MP3 and then upload it. Yeah, and I'd imagine another well, four or five years' time, the system, even though you need the size of this system because you want to have your, your sliders and your, your volume yeah. knobs and that sort of thing, but it could be half the size. Or most of it's on a device. So yeah. it, all you've got is even a unit which is half the size and then everything, the way to control it is just through the, a, a Bluetooth device. Yeah. And it's f- and like, you know, we we like to think that we we're very accepting of change and being able to adapt, but I don't want it to change from that. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't want it to be smaller than this. And it's a good looking machine. It is. It's it is. It's that it's that sexy looking that they'd put it on a Marvel television series at the end of the. It is in one division. In credits. It's, uh, it was in the first couple of episodes, and um, they didn't explain that either, did they? No. It was just a piece of equipment that they used as a prop, which is just brilliant. Yeah. That they, they just happened to have one. Marvel Studios has a roadcaster for some reason. Yeah, I wonder who's been using it. I'm not sure. But it was definitely uh, it was definitely a big sticker over the bit that said road. <laughs> <laughs> road didn't get their product placement. They did That's not. Sad. All right, let's wrap it up a little bit. We'll move on to our final questions where I, uh, I ask people, usually my age... Uh, a set of questions about the future. Yeah. But uh, I'll ask these anyway as they are written on the piece of paper and we'll uh, we'll go forward because you are much closer to 50. Yeah. Actually very close to 50. Yeah, just, uh, actually I've tripped over the line. Yeah, so the question is, what do you hope to achieve by 50? Oh, let's see. <laughs> what do I hope to achieve? Time travel. Yep, so you can go back. Go back. Talk to 10-year-old Glenn. And talk to Glenn yeah, and achieve get, something by 50. Get his shit together. <laughs> uh, I guess so the question could be what... <laughs> what do I hope to... Ach- what either? What do I hope to achieve by the time I'm 60? Yeah, we can move <laughs> or, forward to 60 or, or 70. Or I could say, what have you achieved? Well, oh, look, it's been, been one hell of a ride. Yep. What would I... There, there's a lot... Look, I think it's have fun. So that's why I'm, that's why I'm back at TAFE, yeah. learning... Not just learning new things. I'm learning things that I knew or thought I knew, but things have changed. I'm enjoying that. I'm getting house sitting gigs, lining them up, I'm living in other people's houses, not illegally. It's that's been fun. And yeah, I just I it's time. T- it's not. It's not like oh, I've got to live for me now. I just got to have fun. Yep. And that just comes about. Being life's an adventure, and it's not so much about 
the shit you own, it's the experiences of life that you have. But also, too, some of these experiences w- we are having is because of the shit we own. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, so that enhances and that allows us to do things that we enjoy doing. The only other thing I think about the big, big old 50 mark is that, and I was well aware of this, especially approaching 50, and I thought, I've never been told I look good for 49. Yeah, I don't think anywhere from my mid-40s onwards, I was never told, oh, how old are you, 48? Jeez, you look good for 48. <laughs> never got that. Before I turned 50, I thought, you know what's going to happen? When I'm 50, people are going to talk to me and they're going to go, hey, you know, how old are you? 50. And they're going to go, jeez, you look good for 50. So it's that little bridge. Yeah, yeah. That's From 49 to 50, you go from looking really <laughs> fucked up to, to, hey, you look all right for your age. And I got it twice. Wow! Within within a week, two weeks, I got that. Those conversations came up. Was mentioned how old are you? Fifty. Geez, look good for fifty. It was at TAFE. Both occasions. Both those comments were made by guys. It's all but right. you know you got to take it from where you get those compliments from. But I was like, yes, I've uh, my prediction has come true. So yeah, so I'm happy with the way things have turned out. I think I've uh, I've achieved much of what I uh, look. I think I've done stuff that I couldn't have dreamed of. Yeah. When I was ten, yeah. when I was ten, I'm pretty sure I would have loved to. Have, uh, you know, did want to be a stormtrooper. Didn't think it would be possible, but I got to be a stormtrooper. Oh, I still am a stormtrooper, but I got to do it, visit hospitals and schools and at the cafe. You do a lot more good than what a stormtrooper would have. Yeah, possibly. Normally. <laughs> look, look I, I don't know. Like, stormtrooper, how many... They're always missing their shots, but I'm pretty sure there's probably a few kids who have taken a blast to their head because they didn't see them there. Yeah. Yeah. So the I'm looking forward to this next decade. Yeah, awesome. The, the 20s, the roaring 20s are going to be... Look, we started off pretty shit last year. Yeah. But I think it's going to get better. I hope so. And that's why I'm doing this podcast too, so I can get out there and get people to think about it. Mm. The uh, what what did you fear the most about getting to this this stage now? Oh, I think the only thing I feared was fear itself. Yeah. <laughs> I what a uh, line. Who, who was who that? That was JFK. Oh, I, I don't know. I think maybe being alone yep. would have been a fear, but I'm single. But I've, I've also known that being alone doesn't mean you're lonely. No. And, yeah, so yeah, that, I think that's, a, oh, you know, what if, you, if, if you're not, you don't have that significant other? Well, no, life's pretty good. Despite that, and I can come and go and do as I please, and and have coffee with whoever I, with whomever I choose to have coffee with. Yeah. All right. What is one thing you're deeply proud of so far? Oh. I possibly the li- I'll say the lives I've touched in in many different ways, whether it's been in small, insignificant, like not very. Not big ways like acts of kindness or helping people out or inspiring people, that sort of stuff. 
uh, I, I tend to forget those things, but people who have been touched by thing, but could be my generosity or whatever, they don't forget that. It's probably a good thing I do forget it, and I'm not like, <laughs> oh, no, I don't get too humble. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a good thing that I'm just like, oh, probably I probably got it from my parents because I think my parents are far too generous, far too giving, and um, yeah, so. You know, my kids and the lives they're leading, whether that's in in a, on a journey that doesn't involve me or does, you know, oh, I think there's going to, that my my DNA will continue on. Maybe that's, that's the way to be immortal, <laughs> to have kids. Legacy. Yeah, that's your legacy, yeah. And then you've got to stop and think and go, well, there's definitely... Uh, there'll probably be at least one ancestor that'll be like, what do you mean you've got helicopters and you don't know how to fly one? So I've probably been a bit of a disappointment. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but the world's changed. Yeah. Like, yeah, like, the, what what our ancestors, what they had to go through and, and what they fought for, they did that so we don't have to. Yeah, I, I think you're right. When we're thinking about in the the 20th century, you know, the world wars, that sort of stuff. Go further back, like the Vikings. And they were just, they were doing it. <laughs> <laughs> they were pillaging and plundering yeah. for the sheer pleasure of it. Yeah, And I've got Viking blood in me. I'm very proud to, to claim that now, about 9%. The DNAs. They didn't help with any height issues, they did it. Like no. Didn't no. Add. But there's some Bantu in there as well, which I think, Okay. That, that, so that's that's a southern African, you know. We're talking. I don't know if they're 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 related to pygmies. Yeah, right. Yeah, that that probably maybe that that gave you that, your height. That, yeah, <laughs> that, that may that may have pulled it down. But there's there's Scottish, there's there's Irish, there's English, there's Indian, German. Right. There's even Jew. Final question: What is happiness? Oh. I can throw a bit of cliche out there. Happiness is not a destination, it's a journey. I think that... And it's something that you've... I think there's things in life that can make you... You can just think about it, it can warm you up inside and feel good. I think happiness is feeling good. So sometimes I think people seek happiness by feeling good by whether it be alcohol or drugs. But then that wears off and then they continually want and that's how addictions arise. But I think happiness can be from something that is just like that good thing in your life, you know, like a child. Um, but there's other ways that happiness can come about and it, I think it's a can be a daily a, a, it's a daily destination where you go, all right, what what am I gonna do today that's gonna make me feel happy? And Hopefully it's not. Hopefully it doesn't cost money. <laughs> or, or yeah, a roadcaster costs money. It does, uh, but but they have a pretty good deal. But about the eight hundred dollar mark at Muse's Corner. You can slide a Muse's Corner out in there, and so I think there's things you can you can buy happiness, and it can t- continue to give you pleasure like this roadcaster. But there's other things like maybe it's food. But you got to continually outlaying for that yeah. and yeah so 
You, what they say, money doesn't, what is it? Money doesn't buy happiness? Money doesn't buy happiness, but it helps. Yeah, oh, it helps. <laughs> because a lack of money, well, I'm, I'm a big fan of, I don't have much of it. Big fan of money because money pays bills. And when the bills are paid, I'm happy. Yeah. And I don't mind paying those bills. That's it's a, I think it's that a comfort. Is, yeah. I'll say my first wife, she she hated paying bills. It was, I, <laughs> give her the shits. Change her mood. She'd be miserable all day. She, I can look back and go, she's taking that misery out on me. But she would, she hated paying the bills. But my thing is, well, I should be happy to pay it because I have electricity. Yeah. Because I'll be far more miserable Without in life, it, yeah. without the electricity. No hot shower. Are, no, things will be less fun. No TV, yeah. no Netflix, no internet, no roadcaster. So many things. You know, we can soon you, you have a blackout and it's like, ah, oh, well, I guess I can chill out. What am I going to chill out? I'm going to watch some TV. I can't watch the TV. No. I might go put on the, can't put the kettle on. You just go, there's so little we can do without having electricity mm-hmm. other than playing board games by candlelight. Yeah. yeah. So happiness... Yeah. Is is a good thing to have. It is a good thing to have. All right, mate. Like always, it's fantastic talking. And I'm sure we've got to talk for another hour and yep. 17 minutes. Oh, jeez. You're going to have to... I wonder how many... How much you're going to cut out. Uh, I don't know if I did many ums. Pretty sure you'll find out, though. I will. I will find out. i got a feeling I'd, I probably have to cut much out of it all. Oh. Uh, I probably won't. I'll probably just do it as is. Thank you so much for spending a bit of time talking about when you were young. Yep. It's been my pleasure being here on the checkup. Yeah. In the neck up. The neck up. Checkup. All right, mate. Thanks a lot. See ya. Bye.